Before we begin, I wanted to take a moment and explain what's going on with this episode, because we're doing a couple of things differently. First, it's in two parts, which is something I have never done before. And second, it's a collaboration done with another podcast and another podcaster, Mr. Patrick Oliver Jones from the Why I'll Never Make It podcast. And yeah, that's that's my impression of you, Patrick. He's with me here right now, and I have him here mainly to ask him two questions. So, Patrick, you ready for my two questions? I'm ready, Dan. I'm excited to be here. All right. So, question one. This episode is about the adaptation of The Little Prince. For those unfamiliar, can you please explain what is The Little Prince about? So The Little Prince is a children's story that was written in 1943, and it follows this young boy, The Little Prince, and he's from this asteroid out in the universe, asteroid B612, and he visits random people, places throughout the universe, and one of them that he happens to visit is here on Earth, and The Little Prince happens upon a pilot who has crash-landed in the Sahara Desert. And they get to know each other, and through their conversations, the little prince tells all these various stories of people that he's met around the universe. And it's a very simple story. Not really much happens, and really the whole point is the little prince is trying to get back to his planet. That's kind of the through line of the story. And it's very simple. It was illustrated and was well-received when it first came out. And since then, it's just generation after generation has has all these fans, both of children as well as adults like myself who've grown up with it. So it is, uh, it's, it's a very interesting story in that it's, you know, just following this little boy as he travels, but there's so many life lessons that he learns with each of the people that he meets. And I think that's why the story has resonated for so many decades now. Yeah, it seems like it has touched lots of people. That's kind of the the takeaway that I've gotten while while doing this one. So my second question uh, sort of ties into that. Doing this episode was your idea. I was minding my own business. Patrick kind of barged in. (laughs) I've got an idea. I said, okay. So my question to you is, why did you want to tell this story? This story of the adaptation of The Little Prince? Well, your podcast is all about these unusual stories, these kind of hidden behind-the-scenes tales of what happens and doesn't happen in these movies. And for the longest time since I was a, a young boy, when I first saw the movie adaptation, I loved the music, I loved the story, I, I, you know, I thought it was this kind of like fun, great movie. Come to find out, it was a commercial flop. No one really likes it. People think it's weird or bizarre. Or I, I even took it to a film class when I was in college, and the teacher didn't think much of it. Oh, I didn't so, know that. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> right? So, so for me, I've always kind of felt like this kind of cheerleading the underdog when it comes to this movie. And so with your podcast, it seemed like a great fit to really explore why didn't this movie do well? It has such a great cast. It has great songs by a a Broadway composing team. So I thought your podcast would be the perfect place to highlight what went right and what went wrong with this movie adaptation. Wow, that sounds like a perfect description of what this podcast does. All right. Thank you very much, Patrick. Let's uh, start the show. After Orson Welles made Citizen Kane and The Magnificent Ambersons, 
he had an idea for his next movie. He had read and fallen in love with the children's book, The Little Prince. And Wells knew how he was going to make it. It was going to be a mix of live action and animation. So it only makes sense that Wells would look to collaborate with someone who knew animation, Walt Disney. The potential collaboration between Wells and Disney, two legendary figures in the industry, has become almost a legend itself. The story goes like this. Wells was eager to make The Little Prince with Disney. He arranged for a meeting, and soon the two men sat across from each other at a conference table, with Wells pitching his idea. But shortly after Wells started pitching, the meeting was interrupted. An urgent call had come, and Disney had to take it. He left the room and never returned. What was the problem? Story goes that Disney was overheard yelling at the man who set up the meeting, saying, There's not room on this lot for two geniuses! It's a good story. I do wonder how accurate that quote is, though. Even though Disney's not on board, Wells still pursues making The Little Prince. He reportedly wrote five versions of the screenplay and was working with animator Hugh Harmon on the project. But it just never happened. It became another one of Wells' many unrealized projects. Here's what Harmon had to say about what happened to the Wells version of The Little Prince in an interview years later. He and I went into a partnership on a deal to make The Little Prince in 1943-44. I developed the greatest respect and regard for that guy. He wasn't as the film business had him, a temperamental type. He wasn't that way at all. He was going to play the lead in it, the aviator, and we were going to get a boy for the little prince. Our sets would have been a combination of drawn and live. There would have been animated characters within the scope of the picture playing these live people. We studied and studied and studied that book. We had it all set and were ready to go when Orson became tremendously ill. We couldn't say a word about it, but he nearly died. He had a bad liver at the time. He went to Florida to recover and was gone for months. We didn't revive it after that, and we lost the whole deal. While this was the first time that anyone had attempted to adapt The Little Prince into a feature film for American audiences, it wasn't the last. But just like Wells, they'd all have their problems. My name is Dan Delgado, and in this episode, we're taking a look at the many adaptations of The Little Prince. Welcome to the industry. After the Orson Welles attempt, the next time The Little Prince would be adapted for American audiences began in the 1960s. And it happened thanks to a lawyer named Joseph Tandit. I think he was like kind of a, a big personality. He liked to, you know, he definitely enjoyed the entertainment business. He was a lawyer. He did everything but criminal law. And he said if he had, and he was also, as, as you can imagine, was involved in entertainment and theater specifically, but he, um, he always had said, you know, if I could produce the next Phantom of the Opera, I would give up law in a heartbeat. That's Joseph Tandit's daughter, Danielle. In the mid-1960s, Tandit had no real connection to the industry, but a couple of friends had told him they wanted to make a movie out of The Little Prince and had an agreement from Gene Kelly to star as the aviator. And they needed him to, one, go to France and secure the rights from the St. Exbury family, and then two, go to California and get Gene Kelly to sign a contract. And even though he had no experience in this area, he flew to France and got the agreement with the St. Exbury family. Then he flew to California to meet with Gene Kelly. And the great dancer, actor, choreographer, and director Gene Kelly had no idea what he was talking about. He was interested, though, but 
only in directing it. He had retired from acting. When Tandit went back to New York to tell his friends that he did have an agreement for the rights that would cost $10,000, but no Gene Kelly as the star, they lost interest. They didn't want to make it anymore. And that's when Tandit decided to do it himself. He hadn't even read the book yet, but while in California, Gene Kelly, who, yes, had no idea what he was talking about, but said he would direct it. And so did Jean Renoir, the famed French director. Tandit met with him as well. And as it turns out, Renoir was friends with St. Exbury and said that he would direct The Little Prince. Tandit figured he had the tiger by the tail. In fact, that was his exact wording of it in his book, The Lawyer and the Little Prince, in which he details the adventures of getting the movie made. He paints himself as rather a kind of regular guy in a irregular situation. It's interesting because the stories that I remember growing up that he told me about making that film were very different than the, it, it seemed much more glamorous in his stories versus what you read in the book, how he portrays it in the book, where he was kind of like lucky to go. Tandit put his own $10,000 to secure the rights and was off to try to make a movie happen. He put out a press release announcing that he now had the movie rights to The Little Prince and suddenly his phone was ringing off the hook. People were lining up looking to help him make The Little Prince. And of all the offers that he had, from people like Gene Kelly and Jean Renoir, I will tell you that for me personally, the best offer came from composer John Barry. Barry was already an Academy Award winner and well-established in the industry. And he had put together an entire group that would have made The Little Prince. Barry himself would, of course, do the score, and he had Robert Bolt, who had already won an Oscar himself for writing A Man for All Seasons to do the screenplay. Harry Saltzman from the James Bond series would serve as producer. Rudolf Nureyev, the famed Russian ballet dancer, would play the aviator. And directing it all would be none other than David Lean. As in Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago David Lean. But Tandon wasn't me, and he didn't go that route. Though to be fair, this offer came a little late as he had already signed an agreement with Paramount Pictures just prior. Though Harry Saltzman was positive that he could break that deal. Really, I don't think it would have happened because Joseph Tandit had one man in mind for the job. An acclaimed lyricist who, as it turned out, already had a three-picture deal in place with Paramount. With two pictures already lined up, paint your wagon, and on a clear day you can see forever, there was a spot already open for the Little Prince. And that lyricist, the one that caused Joseph Tandit to pass up on what has to be one of the greatest what-if lineups of all time, was a man named Alan J. Lerner. In the world of musical theater, the writing team of Alan J. Lerner and Frederick Lowe are probably second only to Rodgers and Hammerstein when it comes to fame and notable Broadway hits. But it certainly didn't start out that way. They first met in 1942. Lerner, a New York native, was only 24 years old at the time, and Lowe, an Austrian immigrant, was 41 years old. Their first two collaborations were basically commercial flops, one of them not even making it to Broadway. It wasn't until 1947 with the musical Brigadoon 
that Lerner and Lowe became household names. After that came other Broadway successes with My Fair Lady and Camelot and the movie musical Gigi. As the lyricist and book writer Alan J. Lerner also worked on adapting these musicals into films. But in 1960, after the opening of Camelot, Frederick Lowe, or Fritz as he was known to his close friends, stated that it would be his last show before retirement. And with that, the two parted ways. Lerner would go on to collaborate with other writers, and while he found moderate success, he never reached the heights of his partnership with Frederick Lowe. In fact, fast forward to 1971, and Lerner was working with composer John Barry, the same one you heard about earlier. Now, Lerner and Barry were working on a musical adaptation of the notoriously controversial novel Lolita. The production was scheduled for a multi-city tryout tour before eventually heading to Broadway. However, neither critics nor audiences reacted favorably to the production, and it ultimately never made it past Boston. Around that same time, though, Lerner reached back out to Frederick Lowe and sent him a motion picture script he had written of The Little Prince. The two spoke on the phone and rekindled their excitement of writing and working together again, Lerner said in his memoir, The Street Where I Live, that 11 years slipped away in a minute, and it was pre-Camelot again. Eventually, Stanley Donnan was brought in to direct. He had a knack for turning musicals into movies with a string of hits, including Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, The Pajama Game, Damn Yankees, and his biggest hit of all, Singing in the Rain. Now, adapting a children's book into a movie isn't really that unique or unheard of, but what makes The Little Prince different is that the bulk of the plot and the weight of its themes and messages fall upon one young boy. So casting that title role had to be very specific and would take a very special kind of child actor to do it, pretty much finding a needle in a haystack. At the age of five, Stephen Warner was sat down in front of a TV one night and was watching a variety show with a bunch of dancers. He was absolutely mesmerized by the dancing and pointed at the TV and said to his mother, I want to do that. Now, his mother was once a dancer herself and was reluctant to have her child go into the same profession, but he persisted and was eventually enrolled in a stage school. They sent me there for one term, and I absolutely hated it. I hated it. Um, getting up really early in the morning, not getting home until late, having too much homework, and I didn't have a chance to play with my friends. You know, and I just thought, this is, this is awful. I don't like this at all. So I, I told my mom, that's it. I don't want to be a dancer anymore. I hate it. You know, that's it. It's all over. And so my mom and dad agreed that I would come out of that school and just go back to a normal school. And uh, I think it was the next day that I actually got the role in Little Prince. Because you see, while he was at that school, even for just one term, talent scouts from Paramount Pictures had come to audition all the boys in the school. They put all of the boys from the school, all of us, were put on the stage. And I was right on the end because I was the smallest. Right on the end, on stage left. I think I was more interested in the mechanism that made the curtains open and close, you know, and I and they did the, the thing that I hate about auditions when they walk along the line going, no, 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 step forward. No, 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 step forward. And they got to me and I was not paying any attention. 
And they said, you know, step forward. And I, and I said, why? And they said, we want you to sing for us. And I said, I can't sing. And they went, yeah, 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 you can sing. Come on, sing us a song. And I went, no, I don't know any songs. And they said, okay, what about a nursery rhyme? Do you know any nursery rhymes? And I said, no. And I was doing what a, a normal, naughty kid would do. I said, I don't want to do it. I don't want to play. I don't, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. And eventually, um, they did actually manage to get me to sing one verse of When Santa Got Stuck Up the Chimney, because uh, it was the only thing I could think of. And I guess that must have been good enough to get me a screen test. So I had two screen tests, I believe. And I think it was on the second one. I went up to this man and I said to him, can you tell me now, have I got the part? Because I don't want you to keep taking me out of school every time, you know, because you keep bringing me to these things and then telling me I've got to come back again. And I'm, I'm missing my classes and my friends at school, something like that. And apparently that was Joseph Tandy, the producer. Um, and he thought that somebody of my age, if I had the guts to speak to him like that, I didn't know who he was though, but if I was going to be like that, it shouldn't really faze me being on a set in front of 40, 50 people. And it kind of didn't really, you know, because I suppose when you're younger, you don't really have any fear, you know, because you're invincible. But, um, but yeah, I, I kind of got the part and I wasn't really trying to get to it. Now, the thing was, Stephen didn't really know what the audition was for. He didn't know the story of the little prince, and his mother really tried to play down the fact that this was for a big-budget film. I didn't really know anything, um, except for when the phone call came through. I remember it being in an evening, and my mum screaming. And I was watching TV, and I'd just finished having some food. And she came in, she's like, she goes, you've got the part, you've got the part. And I was like, oh, great. What is it? Shoot, shoot commercial. What is it? You know, am I, am I eating cakes again or something? And she was like, no, it's in a film. And I was like, oh, okay. And I just thought it was a small part in a film. I had absolutely no idea that it was the title role. I didn't know. So while Stephen was a newcomer to film, even though he had done a smattering of commercials here and there, the rest of the cast was a mix of British and American actors, a veritable list of who's who when it comes to stage and screen. Richard Kiley was cast as the aviator. Bob Fosse played the snake. Gene Wilder played the fox. Donna McKechnie played the part of the rose. And Joss Ackland was the king. All of them, I didn't know who any of them were before I met them. I, I, I wasn't going to be told, oh, Steve, you're working, you know, Literally, the first time I met him, we did a little read-through, and they said, oh, so this is Richard. And I was like, oh, hello, Richard. You know, I said, oh, I'm Stephen. He said, yes, I, I know you're Stephen. He said, I'm really pleased to meet you. He said, we're going to be doing this together. I said, so I'm going to help you. You're going to help me. I said, okay. But as the title character, Stephen was definitely the star of the show. And everybody made me feel very special, but my mom was always there in the background. No, he's just a kid. He's just a kid. I think my mum was pretty keen to play it down because uh, she was very much, you know, you're just a normal kid like all the other kids, you know. She never entertained anything like, you know, oh, my God, you're a big star. She, she would never have anything like that. You know, if I wanted to go and ride a bike, you know, fall off and scrape my leg, fine. It didn't matter if you were filming the next day. She was like, no, no, he's a normal child. And as a normal young boy, Stephen was rambunctious and excited, 
But as the long days of filming wore on, sometimes he wasn't as excited at being the little prince. I guess the people at Paramount had worked with children before, and there's a wonderful talk called bribery. You know, that if the kids go, well, I'm tired, I'm bored of doing this now, I, I don't want to do that anymore, uh, they would be like, hey, Stephen, have you seen this train set? You can have this if we just do that, take one more time, and we're going to get it just right. And there was a little bit of that going on, almost to the point of like where I'd actually seen the toy box, where I knew what was in it. So there was a little bit of that going on. Um, they knew what toys I liked. And um, so I, I got a lot of toys. As far as the actual filming of Little Prince, how long did it last? It, it kind of took a whole year. The past where we'd filmed in Tunisia, that, that was supposed to be six weeks. But I'm pretty sure they extended it. We stayed longer than six weeks. Then we had a little bit of a break, maybe a month. And then... We were in the studios at Elstree. For me, what seemed like forever. You know, when you're that young, you know, a year seems like a decade, you know, and it seemed to go on and on and on and on. And then we kind of got to the bit when they said, okay, that's it. We've finished filming. And I was like, all right, wh wh when are we going to see it? When are we going to see it? And they went, oh, not for a long time yet. We've got to do all the dubbing next. And I went, what's that? I had no idea what it was. Uh, I'd never done anything like that before. I'd never seen anything like that before. The parts of music, the incidental music, I, I understand that it was possibly written after the film was put together. But I remember being in there with an orchestra for one bit and they were playing music um, because there was one or two songs that didn't make it into the film. We filmed it and they were cut. But I remember one that Richard Kiley had and it was a really nice song. And, they, and I was like, what? I can't believe they cut that song out. But they cut loads out anyway. But when we were on set, then obviously they had the playback going in the background. And I remember Mr. Donan saying to me, come on, Stephen, sing. And I went, I've already done it. It's, it's on that track. And he said, no, we need you to sing it again. And I went, but I've already done it. And he said, no, I want to see your mouth moving. He said, the best way to do it is just sing it again. And I was thinking, oh, they really work in me hard. <laughs> There is one shot. They cut the sound out of it because it would have been his voice in it. He was stood behind the camera with a glove puppet. It's the first time the camera sees me close up and the camera's up high and it comes down low towards my face. And they've got all of the, the guys had the reflector boards to reflect the sun back onto me. So all I could, I was just blinded by this white light. Um, and you can see me trying not to squint because I was like, ah, you know, because they kept saying, Stephen, open your eyes. You need to look up. You need to open your eyes. And I was like, I said, but it's so bright, you know, and they, they said, yeah, but this is a really important, this is when we get to see you close up for the first time. I said, so it's really important that you don't screw your eyes up. And the puppets that I'm talking about, they're called Sooty and Sweep. They're in English puppets. And Mr. Donan behind the camera, Stephen, Sooty says, open your eyes and look up here. And I was like that, you know, he says, look here, look here, look here. So she says this. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, like, like now I think about it. Thinking only a handful of years before that, he was with Gene Kelly doing singing in the rain, for God's sake. You know, um, I mean, it's nuts when I think about it. He's one of the biggest musical directors in Hollywood. Um, and he was just this nice man, you know, but well, he was nice to me. <laughs>
Now, Stephen wasn't the only boy on set. There in Tunisia, there was a body double that would do some of the longer shots, especially when Stephen had to do schoolwork. Then in the studio, there was a stunt double hired to do some of the flying on wires. However, as soon as he was put up in the air, he started screaming and was immediately brought down again. So I was like, I said, I'll do it, I'll do it. And they were like, oh, I don't know about this. I went, yeah, yeah. And my mom's like, no, let him do it, let him do it. And they put the wires on me, took me up, and I was like, I love it, I can fly. And so I did all my own stunts in The Little Prince. And one of the most unique sets in the film was The Little Prince's Planet B612. It, it, the whole planet did used to rotate around. So it obviously was fixed to the wall behind. It was just the half of it. Uh, sometimes there was people inside it as well. Like everything that was on the outside of it was bolted to it, except me. <laughs> I was on wires. And obviously they just rotated the camera at the same time as the planet. So it looked like I was walking upside down. Um, but that it was really high up in the air. So anything where I sort of like jumped off of it and like flew away, which there was a couple of shots um, that they kept in that was like that. The the whole sequence with the lamplighter was taking out the film, which is a bit of a shame. Um, but he was an animatronic. He wasn't even a person. And the planet for that was actually really small. And the only thing that was on it was the guy and the lamp. And I, I think maybe they took it out because it wasn't very realistic. And there was another one where they had just a part of the planet, but that was actually quite low near the floor. And those things were boring because I wasn't on wires. I was like, on wires, so much more fun. Uh, I, nearly broke, I nearly broke my leg, actually, on one shot. Um, they wanted me to fly towards the camera and just go over it. And the guy that was supposed to pull the cable to make me go up, I think he wasn't paying attention and I flew into the camera. And uh, apparently I, I, I broke something on the camera, but I screamed the studio down and I think they had to stop filming that day and sent me off for an x-ray because they were worried that I'd broken my knee. But no, it's okay. Another train set that shut me up. One of the most iconic parts of The Little Prince is the cloak that he wears and the sword that he has off to the side. But for Stephen, this wasn't one of his favorite parts. There was actually four coats. There was one for flying because it had holes all over it so they could attach the wires. There was another one that didn't have buttons and the sword. I can't remember why. There was one that was made specifically for me. And now I think there was like a, a standby one or something. But I, I remember wearing it for the first time. And when they put it on me, I went, oh, but, and I was like, I said, this is really heavy. And, uh, and they were like, well, you know, it, it has to be made of this fabric. It has, and it was made up in London, some costume is that. And it was incredibly heavy. And um, I actually still have it. Um, I'm not supposed to have it. <laughs> I mean, the, the reason I got it was because um, for part of the promotion for the movie, um, I had to go to the States. And it was kind of cool because we flew out on Pan Am from London to JFK and they wanted me to arrive as the little prince. So I remember the flight attendant telling my mum, okay, it's two hours to landing now. So she had to take me to the toilet and get me all changed into the stuff. 
And I remember walking down the aisle to go back to my seat and everybody else, everyone on the plane, oh my God, it's the little prince, the little prince. Because when I didn't have everything on, it didn't look anything, I didn't look anything like it. And so I sort of sat there. And when we got to JFK, uh, the thing that I remember was the first thing that happened was that they took photographs for Pan Am because they, I don't know, it was in their advertisements or something. You know, although the little prince can fly, he flies at Pan Am or something like that. I can't remember exactly. So they wanted lots of photographs with me on their plane. And then they threw a blanket over me and rushed me through the airport and threw me into the back of a limousine. And my mum was like, well, what was that all about then? Um, but, um, yeah, so we had, well, I've still got the whole outfit, everything, um, with the exception of the sword. I don't know what happened to that. Maybe we didn't take it. Um, but everything went with us to the States with a little promotional tour. And when we got back, I think my mum deliberately forgot to send it all back to Paris. <laughs> but as any actor will tell you when doing a show, some of the most long-lasting memories come from the connections and friendships that are made on set or on stage. And as the two main characters, Stephen Warner and Richard Kiley, spent a lot of time together. And I remember Richard as being one of the nicest people ever. He was so, so kind to me, lovely and friendly. And like even between takes, everything, like normally people say, if you need me, I'll be in my trailer. It wasn't like that at all. He'd be like, okay, come on, Stephen, let's go and play. Let's go and do this. Let's go and do that. Because I couldn't play with Tommy, the guy, that, the, the other kid on the set, because he would, he would be working then, like setting up for the next shot or doing something else. So I didn't really get to play with him until in the evenings. You know, and then it was a case of like, okay, you need to eat some food. You've got one hour of like learning script and then it's bed. And um, so the, our playtime was very, very brief. It, it's really strange because when people say about the rings, they will say, oh, the leading guy was Gene Wilder. I would say, no, it, it was actually Richard Kiley. And a lot of people in the UK, they go, who? And I say, you actually, you do know his voice. And I said, you don't, maybe you don't know his name, but you, I said, if you've ever seen the film Jurassic Park, you know his voice. I said, they even say, we got the best. We got Richard Kiley. That is a line in Jurassic Park. And also in uh, another film that I absolutely loved, um, it's The Producers. Not the original with Gene Wilder, but the remake that Mel Brooks did. And there's a little thing, and if you blink, you'll miss it, but there's it's towards the beginning. Uh, and they're outside a theatre, and it actually says on the side of the theatre, Richard Kiley. So yes, at that time, as Stephen said, Gene Wilder was a bigger name than Richard Kiley. He was certainly a big star here in the U.S. Having already starred in The Producers and Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory, but Gene Wilder's appearance in The Little Prince almost didn't happen. In 1973, Gene Wilder was living in New York and working on the script for Young Frankenstein. During this time, he got a call from Stanley Donnan to meet with him and Alan J. Lerner about their adaptation of The Little Prince. Now, Donnan told Wilder he could play any part he wanted, but thought the fox was the best part. And after reading the script, Wilder agreed and said he would be happy to do it. At the same time, Mel Brooks was working on his latest film, Blazing Saddles. 
Now, casting had been problematic throughout filming, and it finally came to a head one day while they were working on the first scene of The Waco Kid. And Gene Wilder writes in his memoir, Kiss Me Like a Stranger, about a particular phone call with Mel Brooks. After I finished writing the first draft of Young Frankenstein, and just as I was about to leave for a little vacation with my wife Jo, before going to London to start The Little Prince, Mel called from a soundstage at Warner Brothers Studio. I need you right now. Dan Daly begged off doing the Waco Kid because he was too tired. So I got Gig Young. But Gig started foaming at the mouth on the way to the first scene in the jail cell. I thought he was just doing some preparation for the part. I said, keep doing what you're doing. I didn't know he'd just gotten on the wagon. We had to send for an ambulance to carry him out. I yelled, it's a sign from God. I'm calling you from a payphone next to the set. Can you come right away? But Mel, I have to be in London in two weeks to do The Little Prince for Stanley Donnan. Call him up. Ask if you can come later. I called Stanley in London and told him the situation. He said, Do you really want to do Mel's film? I said, I really want to help Mel if I can. All right, I'll shoot your scenes at the end of the schedule instead of the beginning. I left for Los Angeles the next day. And of course, Blazing Saddles went on to become an iconic performance in Wilder's long career. And it was also where he met Madeline Kahn for the first time and suggested to Brooks that she would be wonderful in Young Frankenstein. And so we have Stanley Donnan to thank for all of it by just agreeing to rearrange his shooting schedule. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that they let him go, you know, to, to do that, because I don't think anybody else would be able to do it the same. But that rearrangement also allowed Wilder to take another more personal trip. Before I left for London to do The Little Prince, I went to Milwaukee to visit my father, who was seriously ill. I tried to make him laugh, telling him about Mel Brooks and Blazing Saddles and Dom DeLuise singing, Stick out your tush! (laughs) But when I kissed him goodbye, I knew I was seeing him for the last time. A week later, I was told that my father had died. I was filming in an enormous artificial wheat field on a huge soundstage, delivering the most memorable lines in the script. It's only with the heart that one can see clearly what's essential is invisible to the eye. That scene in the wheat field was actually done in a sound studio, but the main scene between Wilder and the Little Prince was done on location in the UK and involved about three weeks of shooting to do scene work and the song Closer and Closer. But to a six-year-old boy, it wasn't filming a musical sequence in the woods that stuck out to him. And I kept saying to my mum, are you sure he's Jean? That's a girl's name. And she's like, no, no, it's spelled different. I was like, okay. And, she, and I, I, I didn't know any men called Jean, you know, but I knew a few women called Jean. I was like, okay. And we chanted and everything and same sort of thing. We went through some script together and uh, I absolutely loved that sequence with the fox. Uh, and he was just the nicest person the nicest person. And he used to call me on my birthday for a good 10 years afterwards, just to wish me happy birthday. Such a lovely man. And so every other week or so, new actors were joining the filming process, usually just for one scene. It was sort of like, you know, every week, well, who is it this week? You know, where are we this week? Sometimes Stephen had a lot to do, like with Gene Wilder as the fox, 
But most of the time, the adult actor was the star of that particular scene. That was the case when Joss Ackland joined the set. And that was only for one week, five days. It was very, very brief. I just remember like going over and over and over like a few specific lines um, because there was hardly any dialogue. It was mostly him singing um, and chasing me around the, the that planet, um, which is the same one as some of the others, but don't tell anyone. They just painted it differently. But um, it, it was... I didn't really have that much to do with him, really. Um, so I didn't get to know him quite as well as the others. It was just very brief. Because he, even though, like, you know, you might have thought it's me on set, it wasn't always me. It might have been Tommy. So I really didn't have that much to do with him. Uh, but the thing I do remember about Josakin, he had a really long cape. And all the little houses that you can see on the planet, they were, like, made of balsa wood. And his cape used to knock them all, all over the place. And they kept trying to stick them all together with sticky tape. And I think they were just losing a battle because his cape was so heavy. You know, he used to like, if it hit anything, stuff would go flying. I think in the end, they just said, just leave it. Just, just let all the pieces fly everywhere. Now, Stanley Donnan had started out as a dancer and choreographer. But by this point in his career, he was focused on directing. So when it came time to stage the scene for The Snake, played by Bob Fosse, he, of course, allowed Fosse full creative freedom to stage and choreograph his musical number called A Snake in the Grass. And again, everybody on set, hey, Bob, Bob, I just thought this, this Bob, you know, the, the, the nice man that could dance. I had no idea who he was. So because for me, it was normal. There wasn't anything like, oh my God, you know, and he didn't act like the big star. None of them did. They, they were just all normal people. And during the whole process of filming, I was absolutely mesmerized by watching him dance because if you remember, like dancing was the thing that actually got me interested in that industry in the first place. So every time, you know, the, the, the music was playing and the cameras were I was just absolutely transfixed watching him dance. When the film was actually finished, I was invited up to um, a place up in London, um, and, they, and I can't remember again who it was that invited us, and they said, you can see two scenes from the film, Steve. We don't want to spoil it for you, but we're letting you see two scenes. And my mum was there, like, thinking, oh, God, please, please, you know, choose, like, a really good one. And I, I said, oh, I want to see Bob Fosse dance. Can I see the part with the snake? And my mum was like, Stephen, you, you, you're not really in that much. You, you don't say that much. And I said, no, I want to see him dance. I said, because it's amazing. I, I just was absolutely fascinated by his dancing. It wasn't until a little bit later that the penny actually dropped who that man was, you know, and like what he was responsible for. And like even shows that I go to see now, I just look at them and I, like, and people still talk about, you know, jazz hands. And I was like, <laughs> that's Bob. But Bob Fosse wasn't the only big-time Broadway dancer to join the filming. In the early 70s, Donna McKechnie was a well-established theater actress and dancer, having already been in five Broadway shows by that point. And so in 1972, she performed in a London production of Stephen Sondheim's Company, which Stanley Donnan had seen her in and later invited her to play the part of The Rose. 
In her musical theater memoir, Time Steps, McKechnie wrote how she was also able to bring a fellow dancer into the film as well. Stanley was staging the movie, but he needed a choreographer. With Michael Bennett not available, I prevailed upon him to hire Ron Farella, a teacher with whom I had been studying with in New York. Intense and sometimes temperamental, Ron had never choreographed either a Broadway show or a movie. In spite of his rough edges, I thought he had real potential, and I wanted to help him. I also figured that we could work well together since we had similar styles and training. After holding out ungracefully for more money, he finally joined us in London. But almost from the start, McKechnie wasn't comfortable with the filming or the direction. The scene and song between The Little Prince and The Rose was one where McKechnie's image was going to be superimposed over a visual of the rose. So she was shot against a black velvet backdrop on a set surrounded by a multitude of technicians, an experience that was vastly different from what she was used to performing in front of a live theater audience. I'd heard the song before, and they explained it to me that that we're never actually going to be in the same scene, but she's going to be like a little person inside the flower. And I was like, okay. And they said, they said they'll do it with projections. And I said, okay. And they said that they, there was plans for her to walk up my arm and then sing. And obviously that never quite happened. So I don't think they had quite had the technology to do that then. But I know the little bits that they filmed with her was actually on the next soundstage at L Street when we were filming something. So I know that she was there. And I did meet her very briefly once. So since The Rose and The Little Prince weren't going to be on camera at the same time, it had to be staged a little differently, which was fine. But then there was Stanley Donnan's direction of what he wanted The Rose to dance like. He wanted McKechnie's number to be a seductive dance with bumps and grinds. But since the scene was with The Little Prince, a seven-year-old Stephen Warner, McKechnie was reluctant to go that way with it. I tried to compromise with a more playful approach, which was sexy, but not too hard-edged, as if I were a child in a woman's body. My efforts really didn't matter in the end. I found myself frustrated by the whole process of making this film. I wasn't helped along the way when the director and choreographer had creative differences. Stanley would stomp his feet in frustration, and eventually he barred Ron from the lot. The atmosphere on set was tense and uncomfortable. When I saw the movie months later, I was mortified. My scene had been cut to ribbons and the music was changed completely. The song I sang, Be Happy, was in my soprano voice, but my voice in the scene was dubbed by someone with a very low, sultry English accent. It occurred to me that Stanley never had any intention to use my speaking voice. But Donna McKechnie wasn't the only one unhappy with her number. In March of 1974, Alan Lerner wrote a letter to his agent, bringing him up to date on the Little Prince production. He called the sequence when the rose sings Be Happy an absolute abomination. He went on to say that the president of Paramount Pictures, Frank Yablans, was revolted by it, as was producer Joseph Tandit, Frederick Lowe, and himself. Despite all of this, Donnan refused to change the number, with one of his arguments being that famed director Peter Bagdanovich thought it was terrific. 
Unfortunately, the disagreements and bitterness only grew when the movie was finally released in November of 1974. In his own memoir, The Street Where I Live, Alan Lerner didn't mince words with how he felt about the end result. It was never heard on the screen as Fritz had composed it. The director, someone called Stanley Donnan, took it upon himself to change every tempo, delete musical phrases at will, and distort the intention of every song, until the score was entirely unrecognizable. Unlike the theater where the author is the final authority, in motion pictures, it is the director. And if one falls in the hands of some cinematic Bigfoot, one pays the price for someone else's ineptitude. In this case, the price was high, because it was undoubtedly Fritz's last score. The first time I actually saw it was in London, and I went along with my mum, my sister, a couple of friends, a couple of my mum's friends, there was like a group of us, we went up, and they had closed the top balcony, it was just for us. And I remember thinking that I was in some ways a little bit disappointed because they'd cut out lots of bits that I really liked. And I was like, what happened to that bit with Gene? And what happened to that bit? You know, why is that not in there? Because if I've understood it correctly, the original cut, they said it was way too long. So they cut a lot of stuff out of the film to make it more bearable for the audience, you know, so it was only 90 minutes. But yeah, there there was some bits that I was disappointed at because I thought that there was other nice bits that they could have left in. But I I suppose that the essential part of it is the actual story. It's not the bits that I liked. It's not the bits that my mum liked. You know, it had to still tell the story. Critical reception of The Little Prince was decidedly mixed. Vincent Canby of the New York Times called the film exasperating, saying it was too abstract for children, yet too simple-minded for adults. He went on to say that the music of Lerner and Lowe was full of lovely things, but a total waste in these barren circumstances. However, local critics like Boris Nelson of the Toledo Blade said it was an intriguing fantasy, noting it was an aesthetically gratifying film and should be seen by children of all ages. But one of the most interesting reviews from 1974 came from The Village Voice and Alexandra Sheedy, a 12-year-old film critic. She acknowledges that grown-ups might find the film boring and that younger children probably wouldn't understand it, but says there's middle-aged children that will get it and says the movie is funnier and clearer than the book and that she really enjoyed it. She went on to say that the film isn't so bad and didn't really deserve all of the negative response and reviews it had been getting. After all, she says, grown-ups really shouldn't see and expect to like the same things kids do. I mean, I, I still get fan mail for it, which I, I'm, I just think, really? You know, it's an old film. It's, it's a long time ago, but they nearly always say the same thing. And it's always like, I don't think you understand what that film meant to me. When I was going through this part of my life or when this happened, I found it very comforting. So I make my children watch it. There's an awful lot of people that taken the time to seek me out and to thank me and I just think I don't really understand why um, but to me it was just that was an ad- adventure that I had I didn't really think it would have a profound effect on anybody else but I guess it must have. For all its negative press though The Little Prince did receive two Oscar nominations for music and actually won the Golden Globe for Best Original Score. 
However, the ultimate downfall of this 1974 movie musical was that no one went to see it. Its box office gross didn't even reach $1 million. Now, by comparison, Blazing Saddles was the top film of that year with almost $120 million. And Young Frankenstein came in at number four on the list, bringing in just over $86 million. But the story doesn't quite end there. Because producer Joseph Tandit may not have found success with a movie musical, but what about a Broadway musical? And so seven years later, in 1981, Tandit reached out to none other than John Barry, who was finally given a chance to compose a score for what had now been retitled The Little Prince and the Aviator. Don Black was brought in to write the lyrics, since he and Barry had worked together before on music for several of the James Bond films. And the job of writing the book went to British novelist and screenwriter Hugh Wheeler, who had previously won Tony Awards for A Little Night Music and Sweeney Todd, among others. Next, of course, was casting. The role of the pilot, or aviator as it was now called, went to the well-known Broadway and film star Michael York. But once again, it all came down to casting the other title character. So Joseph Tandit went far and wide with hopes of finding the right boy to play the little prince. I believe I was first seen in Chicago, where I grew up outside Chicago. So I think they had a, they did like a nationwide search kind of thing. And then I had at least one callback. I think it was only one session in New York. And that was the first time I ever went to New York. My mom and I, it was her first time being in New York. We flew to New York and, you know, so the audition process was pretty, uh, it, it was, as far as I remember, enjoyable. I feel like I was well-treated. There was nothing about it that was scary or weird or anything like that. That is actor and singer Anthony Rapp, recounting his audition process for The Little Prince. Rapp has certainly gone on to find great success on Broadway in shows like Rent and You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, not to mention his numerous film and TV appearances, including his current show, Star Trek Discovery. But as a 10-year-old boy just beginning his New York theater journey, he was just excited to be a part of this brand new musical. However, there were early warning signs of trouble for this production. For example, in an effort to save money, Tandit decided to forego the usual out-of-town tryouts and bring the show directly to Broadway from rehearsals. But for actors like Rap, rehearsals are oftentimes the most enjoyable part of the process. Whatever reason, I always, as a kid, from the first moment I ever did any kind of rehearsal and show at my summer camp theater that I where I made my debut as an actor, I just always loved being in that process. So whatever the process was like, however it was going, I was happy to be there. You know, I can look back again as an adult and see, oh yeah, there are things that were chaotic and weird. But for me, it was just like, I was just rolling with it. I was just happy to be there, having a really good time, learning all these songs. I got to fly in it, like um, flying by Foy, you know, the guys that did Peter Pan. So that was really fun. I mean, there, all of those things, I just have, I have really happy memories of it. Yeah, I remember songs from it. I remember moments. I, yeah, I remember things about it very strongly, even all these years later. And it is a lot of years later. Um, and I can also recognize that it was probably a really rough show, like from an you know, audience perspective. Because you see, one of the benefits of the out-of-town tryouts is that scenes and songs get to be seen on stage and then tweaked or changed or sometimes cut altogether. 
But it's not just the creative elements that have to be put together, but also the many technical aspects as well. That's why tech rehearsals are just as important as the acting rehearsals. But once again, it was decided to cut that process short. We certainly didn't do weeks of tech rehearsals the way they do now. I think sometimes some shows do like four to six weeks of tech rehearsal sometimes. Um, I think maybe we did a week, maybe. I mean, then we had some technical things going. We had like flying, we had things on tracks, which then was still pretty, not there weren't that many shows that were doing automated tracks, you know, um, coming on and off stage. We had a, the, the planet that the Little Prince was on was on a cherry picker, like you would see at a construction site. So that was part of our set. Um, we, you know, we had people in like the, the guy playing the snake was in a interesting state costume where his arms were becoming like the cobra head above his head. So we had to like give this very skin tight outfit and he had like move like a snake and keep his arms up. And we had a lot of things going on. There was dancing, there was a big plane because it was the aviator, you know, that all that stuff. And the, there was staffing changes during it too, which I don't even like, that's a part like as a little kid, I don't even think that I registered. I mean, I was just having fun. Like I said, I, like, yeah, now I was in like, I see, oh yeah, the director was fired. Yeah, that's trouble. Um, there was a lot of uh, material got changed a lot, but I, I recognize that's just the case of almost any show that's in development. Um, so that's not necessarily a sign of trouble. Um, you know, Michael York was lovely to me. And I, I even, like, I recently moved and I found a note that he'd written me um, that was just lovely, really supportive. And, and I, I'm certain that he, it was a crazy thing for him. You know, he, and it was his first, um, I believe it was his musical theater debut, or at least Broadway musical theater debut. I mean, I know he was in the film of Cabaret, but he didn't really sing in it. So he wasn't really a singer. Um, so it was a big risk for him, too. And he, and his name was about the title and all that stuff. And uh, so I'm sure he had a lot riding on it. I'm sure it was a huge sense of setback and disappointment. But he ne- if it was, he didn't, none of, I don't have any memory of that being filtered down onto me. Ellen Green, David Purdom, who played Fennec. I mean, all of the adults were just so wonderful to me. Um, I'm sure that they were going through a really stressful moment because, you know, they, they could see the writing on the wall, I'm sure, in a way that little kid me couldn't. So after about two months total of rehearsals, previews were slated to begin at the end of December in 1981. But that first preview was canceled at the last minute and was rescheduled for January 1st, 1982. It was to be a very short and tumultuous time, with the show closing after only 20 preview performances. I remember being very sad. Like, as a 10-year-old, like, that was a big, sad moment. And uh, totally unexpected. And again, not be- I wasn't sad because I wasn't going to be, like, opening it a Broadway show. I was sad because the experience was, was like, oh, and it would happen like that. So we didn't even get to have the pleasure of like even having an opening night. Joseph Tandit ended up suing the Niederlander organization, which is a very powerful company in New York, owning theaters around the country and nine of them on Broadway, including the one housing the Little Prince and the Aviator. Tandit claimed that the organization had forced him to shut down production because they were demanding more money during its final week of previews. Ultimately, the case was decided in his favor, and he was awarded $1 million, representing about two-thirds of his initial investment. After that, Tandit never again tried to mount a production of The Little Prince. But 
That's not to say it can't be done successfully. These two large-scale productions of his just didn't quite work out. And Anthony Rapp actually has his own ideas of why it's so difficult to bring the Little Prince story to life. I was very familiar with The Little Prince because I'd done a production of a play adaptation of it when I was like eight. It was a really special experience because it was a theater in which deaf and hearing actors worked together. It was a community theater, but um, the, the director who was hearing, she worked with and somebody to help her adapt it. And so that there were some actors who were deaf and signed their role. And then there was a speaking actor, sort of like what Deaf West has done in their productions. And I, as a little prince, spoke my lines and signed while I was in the show. So that was, so I was, and I read the book. And so, I mean, it was, it was very much a part of my spirit and my soul. Like I, it was something that I was very, that had meaning resonance for me. It's an interesting thing because adaptations have been attempted multiple times over the years. And it seems like no one has really gotten it right. But, you know, it's like some, some pieces of work, their, their best version really is on page maybe, you know. It's just everything has its place and setting. And some adaptations can kind of heighten things and illuminate things and make them special in their own right. And some things it just loses. I think because it's, you know, it's very, it's very much an allegorical parable kind of story. And I think that there's something about the, the, the delicacy of those types of tales that maybe just lend themselves a little bit better to a kind of you know, that that inner voice poetry experience you have of reading words and imagining it in your head. And when you when whenever anything's on stage or on screen, it becomes literal in a way that maybe just it's harder to maintain that uh, um ineffable, mystical, mysterious experience of what is what the imagination can do on some. Neither version of The Little Prince that Joseph Tanda produced could really be considered a success. While the 1974 movie does have its fans, like Patrick, it died at the box office. But the movie itself may not be entirely to blame. While in production, the president of Paramount Pictures, Frank Yablans, was a real champion of the picture. When it opened during the holiday season of 1974, it played exclusively at Radio City Music Hall and was sold out throughout the entire holiday season. But then, something happened at Paramount. A regime change. Yablans was out, and a new man, Barry Diller, was now in charge. And Diller's attitude regarding The Little Prince was very different. He either didn't care for it, or didn't want a picture that was championed by his predecessor to succeed. So while it played at Radio City, there was a lot of ad support, including full-page ads in the New York Times for The Little Prince. But once it was time to take the picture across the country, the ad support curiously dried up, which is how this version of The Little Prince just kind of disappeared. Joseph Tannett still held on to the rights even after the 1982 staged version never officially opened. I mean, The Little Prince was like his, his pride and joy. Um, and, I, and there was a period of time where he owned the rights to, to it, and so... If you wanted to have even a children's production in Iowa, you'd have to ask him um, permission to do so. And I think he and also there was a cartoon that was done that was under his under his, I guess, uh, authorization. Uh, I think that was in the, the late 80s, um, early 90s, maybe. And he he loved it. His famous quote that he would say all the time was, I produce quality shows that don't make any money. And there have been a lot of adaptations of The Little Prince. 
There have been versions made for the stage, television, radio, records, and even operas. There's even been several other film versions made in other countries as well. But the 1974 version was the first time a major studio attempted to make it for American audiences. And it wasn't the last. Paramount Pictures was again involved in the adaptation of this beloved book by Antoine Saint-Exupéry. And again, things didn't go exactly as planned. And that's the story we'll get into next time on The Industry. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Industry, presented by Movie Maker. Visit moviemaker.com for more great articles, information, and podcasts about movies. If you love movies, want to make them, or you're a movie maker yourself, then there's something for you at moviemaker.com. There's also a really good newsletter you could sign up for. This episode was written, edited, and hosted by me, Dan Delgado. And Patrick Oliver-Jones. Patrick's excellent podcast is called Why I'll Never Make It, and you should make it a point to check it out. Special thanks to our guests this week, Danielle Tandit, Stephen Warner, and this is Stephen's second time on the industry. He was in our episode about the Blue Bird from 2021, and last but not least, Anthony Rapp. Donna McKechnie was played by Gabrielle Ruiz, and Gene Wilder was played by Peter Allen Vogt. Music in this episode is from Epidemic Sound. Links to all sources used for this episode and anything else I could think is relevant can be found at my website, industrypodcast.org. Look for the show notes. While you're there, you can leave me a voice message, and if you're so inclined, you can even buy me a coffee, which I would likely use to actually buy coffee. If you also really enjoyed this episode, you can feel free to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or wherever it is that you can leave a review. And have you tried Repod yet? This is a fantastic new app. Well, it's new to me. Not only listening to podcasts, but also sharing and interacting with hosts like me. So you can look at it like Facebook groups, but without the hassle of actually being on Facebook, which honestly is something I think we could all use. Head on over there and say hi. If you want to contact me directly, you can. You can email me, dan at moviemaker.com. I'm also on Twitter at theindustry13, Instagram at industry underscore podcast. And yes, unfortunately, still on Facebook at theindustrypod. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back again soon with part two of this story in a couple of weeks. Be good. <laughs>